seated. <clears throat> Let's pray once again and ask for God's blessing as the word is preached. Father, we come to you this morning overwhelmed and amazed by your goodness and kindness to us. Lord, thank you for the sunshine this morning. Uh, thank you for the hope of heaven. Thank you that all of our sins can be forgiven. And thank you for speaking to us in a book. Father, we pray that as the word of God is preached this morning, you would open our eyes and our hearts. Father, we pray that we would worship you as a result of the truths of this particular portion of your holy word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. On December 4th, 1977, in Bangui, capital of the Central African Empire, the world press witnessed the coronation of his imperial majesty, Bokasa I. The price tag for this one event was $25 million. The procession began with eight of Bokasa's 29 official children parading down the royal carpet to their seats. They were followed by Jean Badel Bokosa II, heir to the throne, dressed in a white admiral's uniform, and then Catherine followed the favorite of Bokasa's nine wives, wearing a gown worth $73,000. The emperor arrived in a gold eagle bedecked imperial coach drawn by six, six matched Anglo-Norman horses. He wore a 32-pound robe decorated with 785,000 strewn pearls. As the sacred march concluded, Bokasa seated himself in a $2.5 million throne, then put a $2.5 million throne, or, uh, um, crown topped with an 80-carat diamond <clears throat> on his head. Now, this was an absurd display of wealth, but not unusual for most kings. Most kings display their wealth uh, and their success in the GDP of their country or their fleet of luxury yachts or the size of their army, the size of their castle, the size of their luxury car collection. It's common for kings to have insane amounts of wealth and to flaunt that wealth for the whole world to see. Well, King Jesus is a very, very different type of king. And that brings us to John 12, 12 to 26. Instead of demanding to be served, he served. Instead of living in a castle, he was often homeless. Instead of arriving in a gold chariot, he arrived amazingly riding a baby donkey. He was a very, very different king than the world had come to know. And as a result, the world often misunderstood him and still misunderstands him. Here's the point. King Jesus is a different kind of king, but he's the king that you and I need the most. Well, how is he different than all the other kings of the world? He has a different kind of mission. He has a different kind of magnificence, and he has a different mandate. First, King Jesus is very different because he has a different kind of mission. Well, what exactly is his mission? To understand his mission, you have to understand what the crowd wanted his mission to be, first and foremost. So what did the crowd want his mission to be? The crowd was looking for a political messiah. Look with me at John 12, verses 12 to 13. 
The next day, the large crowd, probably several hundred thousand people this time of year, coming to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast <clears throat> heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now why the palm branches? When Simon Maccabeus drove the Syrians out of Jerusalem and restored the temple 150 years beforehand, everyone waved palm branches as a way to honor him and a way to show their respect for him. So palm branches became a symbol in Israel of national pride and a symbol of political liberation and a symbol of military conquest or victory. Now because of this unique history, uh, the Jews associated these palm branches with a coming political Messiah. Furthermore, as the crowd, as they wave these branches, they shout out in a loud voice, Hosanna. And that uh, word Hosanna means give salvation now. Now what kind of salvation were they asking for? Not salvation from their sins. They were asking specifically for Jesus to save them from the oppression of Rome. They wanted someone tall, dark, and handsome, and strong, someone like King David or King Solomon or one of the Maccabees to deliver them from the oppression of Rome. They misunderstood what he was about. They wanted him to raise an army. And they were wondering, man, this guy just raised someone from the dead, Lazarus, if he did that, then we wonder if he has the power, the supernatural power, to deliver us from the oppression of Rome. They misunderstood what he was all about. Things haven't changed all that much. People still misunderstand what King Jesus is all about. They're still confused about his mission. Some think that Jesus' primary mission is to love and accept everyone regardless of what they think about him. Others think that his mission is primarily to promote social justice. Others think that his mission is primarily to fight political oppression. Still others think that his mission is primarily to make us healthy and wealthy. Others think that his mission is simply to make our lives easier when we decide to follow him. Now many of these people that have this false conception about Jesus, when they hear or learn that this same Jesus, King Jesus, demands that everyone everywhere repent of their sins and follow him, or when they realize that he claims to be the only way to God, or when they realize that he promises to come again someday and judge the world in righteousness, their love for him often turns towards hatred, just like this crowd. This crowd who was shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, to Jesus, just a few days later, shouted, crucify him. Crucify him. Why? Because they realized he was not the Messiah they were hoping for. So they very quickly turned on him. And similar th things happen today. When we realize who Christ really is, we often don't like him anymore. The crowd misunderstood the mission of King Jesus. 
Christ had a very different mission that surprised nearly everyone, even his disciples. So what was his mission? What was the mission of King Jesus? Well, this text highlights the fact that his mission had to do with bringing peace, not war, through humble service. Look with me at verses 14 and 15. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Now he's going to quote here from Zechariah. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, when you think of a donkey, you need to realize that the donkeys in Palestine 2,000 years ago are not like the donkeys that we see today, like the donkey in Shrek, for instance. The donkeys back then were very small. Think of a large dog. They were so small that when people rode donkeys, they had, to, they had to bend their knees to keep their feet from dragging on the ground. That's how small these donkeys were. These were not regal, fear, uh, fearful animals. So the irony is, instead of Christ entering Jerusalem on a war horse or a chariot to conquer Rome, he rides into Jerusalem as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, riding a baby donkey. And he had to lift up his knees to keep his feet from dragging on the ground. And he does this in fulfillment of Zechariah 9, verses 9 to 10 from the Old Testament. Let me read that text for you in its fullness. Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, a baby donkey, not even a grown-up donkey, but a baby donkey. Why? Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bowl shall be cut off. In other words, Christ did not come to make war on Rome. And he shall speak peace to the nations. When Christ came the first time, he did not come as a mighty warrior. He came as an ambassador of peace, a humble ambassador of peace riding a baby donkey. He sh he, his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And how's he going to rule? Not with bow and arrow or shield and sword. No, he's going to rule through humble service. That's who this king is. He's a humble king. And he came to bring peace. Jesus Christ fulfilled this prophecy, which meant that he was not what these people had in mind. And they should have known better because this was in their Bibles. But they overlooked this particular passage and didn't realize that he came to bring peace, not war. He's a different kind of king. Now, when a president or prime minister comes into a large city, several things often happen. First, they often close down the roads where that president or prime minister or rule, a head of state is going to uh, ride his caravan down the busy roads. Furthermore, um, often a large caravan of vehicles is put together. Often what you see is five big black armored SUVs followed by five 
black sedans, followed by five more big black armored SUVs, often um, being overlooked by 10 helicopters, maybe 10 to 15 motorcycles somewhere in the vicinity, uh, trying to protect this caravan as it cruises down the road, bringing this head of state to an important building or um, somewhere else. <clears throat> now, why is there such an incredible caravan? Why all the SUVs? Why all the helicopters? Why all the motorcycles? Well, two reasons. The caravan is designed to keep this person safe, but it's also designed to be a show of force or a show of power. In a similar sense, in ancient Rome, whenever the Roman emperor would travel around, he would be surrounded by literally thousands of soldiers with spears and shields and helmets, cavalry, chariots, and then along comes Jesus into Jerusalem riding a baby donkey. This would be kind of like pulling up to the White House as a head of state in a 1985 Honda Civic with rust on the side. Not very imposing, not very threatening. No one's gonna be afraid of that caravan. It's one car, a Honda Civic, with no weapons, no soldiers. Christ shows up in Jerusalem as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords riding a baby donkey. Now yes, one can argue that donkeys in the Old Testament were often seen uh, as animals that carried around royalty, but this baby donkey was a threat to no one. It was a humble beast designed to bring in the Prince of Peace. This display of humility even confused his own disciples. Look with me at verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. Hard to blame them. But when Jesus was glorified, they then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. When Christ rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, he was signaling to the vast crowds that he was a very different kind of king. He was a king who engaged first and foremost in humble service to bring peace. He did not exploit his people to enrich himself. He did not use his people to protect himself. He did not extend his reign through violence. He's the king who brings about peace through humble service. And this king is a model for all those who are called to lead. All of us who lead, and that's most of us here this morning, must follow Christ's example of leading, bringing peace through humble, lowly service. Husbands, if you want to lead your wife well, it involves first and foremost humble, lowly service, taking up your cross, and asking yourself very carefully, what are my wife's needs? Not what's gonna make me happy, what's gonna make me flourish, but what's gonna make my wife flourish? What's gonna make her happy? What's gonna make my family flourish? What's gonna make my family happy? Those of you who are called to lead businesses, same thing. How can I serve those who work for me? 
How can I serve my customers? How can I humble myself and go lower and lower and lower and serve? Those of us who have bosses, how can we serve our bosses? How can we humble ourselves and go lower and lower and lower? It's hard to go any lower than a donkey where you have to lift up your legs to not drag your feet. And if anyone had the right to a massive, impressive caravan of chariot after chariot after chariot, it was Jesus. But he forsook that right and instead chose to enter into Jerusalem riding a donkey because his kingdom is a kingdom of humility and service. Well, how did King Jesus specifically fulfill his mission? This brings us to the second point. First, King Jesus had a different kind of mission. Second, King Jesus had a different kind of magnificence or glory. How do most kings display their magnificence or their glory? Again, King Bokasa displayed his glory with his $2.5 million throne, his $2.5 million crown, his nine wives, his 29 children, and his gold chariot. That's how most kings, that's how most of us want to display our power, our worth, through our wealth, our accomplishments, our achievements. Jesus Christ is a very different kind of king because he displayed his magnificence or his glory through the cross. How do we see that? Look with me at verse 20 to 24. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Several times in John's Gospel, we read that uh, Christ says that his hour has not yet come. That's happened four or five times so far in John's Gospel. But now finally, after 11 chapters, his hour has come. His hour of what? His hour to be glorified has finally arrived. And think of all the amazing things he's done so far in John's Gospel. But none of those were the ultimate display of his magnificence or his glory. Verse 24 describes for us how Christ will display or magnify his glory. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Again, back to the end of verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verse 24 Jesus gives this illustration about a grain of wheat falling into the earth and dying. And when it does that, it bears much fruit. What's he talking about? He's clearly talking about his death. He's clearly saying that I'm going to be magnified or glorified, not in a display of wealth or power, but I'm going to be glorified or magnified as I suffer and die on the cross. What is the glory of God? The glory of God is the shining forth or the display of God's attributes, God's justice, God's righteousness, God's power, God's love, God's mercy, God's patience. All that is God's glory. And Christ is saying, I'm going to glorify myself or magnify myself on the cross. And that's because the cross is the place 
the primary place in all of Scripture where we see the glory of God shine the brightest. In the cross, we see all those things. We see God's justice and pouring out wrath on his son. We see God's righteousness vindicated. And we see God's incredible mercy and grace and compassion and patience. All those things come together. There's a famous book written by a Puritan called William Bates, and the book is called A Harmony of Divine Attributes. All those things harmonize and come together perfectly, are displayed for the whole world to see in the cross. (laughs) How ironic that God's glory shines the brightest in the crucifixion of the Son of God. What a contrast to King Bokasa. What a contrast to all earthly kings. The cross of Christ is the place where we see the glory of God most clearly. Christ displays his magnificence through the cross. Furthermore, Christ displays his magnificence or glory as he bears much fruit. Again, look with me at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. When a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, metaphorically speaking, under the earth, only then will it bear much fruit. And Christ is saying, only when I suffer and die will I bear much fruit. What kind of fruit? The fruit of billions and billions of people from all over the world coming to faith in Christ. And we see this foreshadowed very clearly in John 20 to 22. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. With the mention of the Greeks, we are given a small preview of the stupendous harvest or fruit that King Jesus will bring about as he is magnified on the cross. His death will bear fruit among every tribe and tongue and nation. How do we know? Revelation 5 tells us that in heaven, there'll be people singing Christ's praises from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation, which means his death will bear fruit in Nigeria, in China, in Canada, in Ethiopia, in the Ukraine, and in Zimbabwe. Jesus Christ will bear fruit, which should encourage us to go out and share the gospel He has purchased these people through his life and his death and his resurrection. And we have the privilege of going out and telling the world how they can be reconciled to God. And through that, King Jesus is magnified. His cross work is honored and glorified. How does King Jesus display his glory? His glory shines brightest on the cross. But there is a double glory in the cross. So in one sense, Christ is magnified as we see all of his attributes on display in the cross. 
And in another sense, though, Christ is glorified because of what the cross does to us and through us. The reason that you're still alive as a Christian is because King Jesus wants to receive glory in and through your life. And because Jesus died on the cross, he has broken the power of sin in you. And because he died on the cross, he has cleansed you from all guilt and shame. Therefore, the Spirit of God can now live inside of you. The power of sin has been broken in you. God has given you his Holy Spirit so that you and I would glorify him in our lives. On the cross, Christ did so much more than provide forgiveness for us, which is wonderful. But he also enabled us on the cross to live lives that are pleasing to him. You and I glorify God as we become more and more like Jesus. As we love and serve and forgive, we are glorifying Jesus. That's why you're alive. You have purpose, you have reason. You're here because Christ wants to receive glory in and through you. Which raises the question, is there anything in your life you're doing right now that is not glorifying to King Jesus? Some show you're watching, some book you're reading, some relationship you're involved in, the way that you interact with your child or your spouse. If that's the case, you must repent. And the good news is, King Jesus loves to forgive and to transform. But we're alive for one purpose, and that is to glorify, magnify the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's a different kind of king. How is he different? King Jesus had a different kind of mission. He had a different kind of magnificence. And finally, King Jesus has a different kind of mandate. What is that mandate? It's rather paradoxical. King Jesus mandates that we lose our lives to save them. Look at verses 25 and 26. Jesus says, Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Verse 25 highlights one of the paradoxes of this amazing kingdom ruled by Christ. Jesus says, whoever loves his life loses it. In other words, whoever loves the sinful pleasures of this life will miss the joy of heaven. He also says, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. In other words, if we're willing to hate sinful pleasure in this life and say no to it, we'll spend eternity with Jesus. Here's the point. It makes no sense whatsoever the trade 80 or 90 years of sinful pleasure for an eternity of joy in the presence of King Jesus. Imagine walking through the downtown mall this afternoon. A guy walks up to you in a dark suit surrounded by several armed men. And he says, I'm giving you two and only two choices. Option one, 
take this needle and inject this heroin into your arm. And if you do, you will experience euphoria for about 20 minutes. And then you'll be hooked on heroin the rest of your life. You'll probably end up stealing from your friends. You'll probably end up on the streets selling your body for money to get more drugs. And you'll probably die in a gutter. But you'll have 20 minutes of insane pleasure. That's option one. Option two. There's some escalators over there. If you go run up and down those escalators for 20 minutes, if you work really hard for 20 minutes, then I promise I will give you an island in the Caribbean with a world-class golf course and clay tennis courts and grass tennis courts and hard tennis courts and a luxury kitchen with a world-class chef a professional massage therapist, amazing beaches, a massive yacht, an incredible mansion with rooms for all your friends. You can have all that, but all you have to do is for 20 minutes work really hard on that escalator over there. Okay, which option would you choose? <laughs> option one or option two? Now, of course, every analogy breaks down. We cannot earn heaven. Heaven is a free gift. We are saved by grace. God gives us heaven free of charge. But the point is, the path to heaven is often very difficult. Following Jesus Christ is not easy. It involves cross-bearing. But our life of 80 or 90 years is going to feel like 20 minutes, like two minutes, in light of eternity. Jesus Christ is saying, it's far better to lose your life now and save it for all eternity. He's saying, why in the world would you trade a few seconds of fleeting pleasure for a resurrection body in a glorified existence for all eternity. Don't do it. It's not worth it. He's making it very, very clear that life is going to be hard. And the primary mandate for Christ's kingdom is cross-bearing, dying a little bit every day. In God's kingdom, we must lose our lives to save them. George Mueller was an incredibly affecting servant of God. When someone asked him, what has been the secret of your life? George Mueller hung his head and said, there was a day when I died. Then he bent lower and said, died to George Mueller, his opinions, preferences, tastes, and will die to the world, its approval or censures, die to the approval of blame, even of brethren or friends. He understood the Christian life. The Christian life is about daily making decisions to die to self. And of course, Jesus Christ is the trailblazer. He's the paradigm. He suffered and died for us, and we are called to follow his example. We follow a crucified and risen king. So the Christian life is a matter of dying to our sinful lusts and passions. 
dying to protecting our reputations, dying to selfish living, dying to stinginess, dying to fear of man. This is the way of the kingdom. When Jesus says, whoever loves his life loses it, verse 25, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about daily dying. But here's the good news. This is by far, ironically, the most joyful way to live. When you and I, empowered by the Holy Spirit and motivated by the grace of God, daily take up our crosses and die, that's when you and I finally experience true life, joyful life, resurrection life. That's the paradox of the kingdom. That's the mandate of the kingdom. We live by dying. We experience joy by dying. And God has given us everything we need to live this way. This is not pull up your bootstraps and try harder. King Jesus has equipped us. He's broken the power of sin in us. He's given us his Holy Spirit. He's with us and he wants to help us obey the mandate of the kingdom. Christ Jesus is a different kind of king who rules a different kind of kingdom. Let me conclude by reading a poem comparing two rulers, Jesus Christ and Alexander the Great. The poem goes like this. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. One died in Babylon and one on Calvary. One gained all for self, and one himself he gave. One conquered every throne, the other every grave. One died the Greek, forever fell his throne of swords. But Jesus died to live forever, Lord of lords. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. The Greek made all men slaves. The Jew made all men free. One built a throne on blood, the other built on love. The one was born of earth, the other from above. One won all this earth to lose all earth and heaven. The other gave up all, that all to him be given. The Greek forever died, the Jew forever lives. Let's pray.